Section 30 of the Watergate Report, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Final Report of the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, Volume 3. Section 30, Chapter 11, Individual Views of the Senators of the Select Committee, Part 3. Mr. Daniel K. Inouye, U.S. Senator from the State of Hawaii, and Mr. Joseph M. Montoya, U.S. Senator from the State of New Mexico. Despite the fact that there is no unanimity among the members of the committee as to the constitutionality, advisability, and practicality of providing public financing of presidential and other federal campaigns, there is a consensus in the U.S. Senate and among the public at large in favor of such reform of our electoral system we count ourselves part of that consensus the testimony and evidence made public during our hearings document the inherent potential for abuse and corruption in any campaign financing system that is dependent upon a small number of large private contributors unfortunately a cure for these abuses which would place strict limitations upon campaign contributions and expenditures would produce an equally unfair system such limitations have the inevitable effect of increasing the existing advantages of the major political parties and well-known individuals that is incumbent office-holders who have greater access and appeal to donors over minor parties and unknown individuals who wish to enter the political arena an open fair and honest campaign financing system must combine effective and timely public disclosure of the sources of campaign dollars realistic limitations upon contributions and expenditures in campaigns and an efficient method for increasing citizen participation in the financing of campaigns in his state of the congress address of february sixth nineteen seventy four majority leader mansfield stated we shall not finally come to grips with the problems of our campaign methods except as we are prepared to pay for the public business of elections with public funds the Senate Committee on Rules and Administration, in its favorable report on S-3044, the Federal Election Campaign Act Amendments of 1974, which passed the Senate on April 11, 1974, by a 53-32 to 32 vote, stated, The election of federal officials is not a private affair. It is the foundation of our government. Senate approval of a comprehensive system of public financing of federal elections, as shown in the vote for S-3044, is but the latest in a number of successful legislative measures designed to bring public dollars into the electoral arena in order to offset the corrupting reliance on large private contributors. For public financing of campaigns is not a new idea. In fact, it is not new law. Public financing measures are now on the books at the national level in the form of the dollar tax checkoff and tax credits and deductions for small political contributions, and in many states. The constitutionality of these measures stands unchallenged. Congress adopted both the checkoff and the tax incentive in 1971. It is important to look at the actual results since then for critics of public financing have sometimes attempted to interpret the early response as demonstrating lack of popular support for the idea we believe that the opposite is in fact true in two short years the american people have shown that given the chance they are very willing to support this important innovation in nineteen seventy two the first year it was in effect 
3.1 percent of all tax returns filed were checked off producing the first three million dollars to four million dollars for the new presidential election campaign fund anyone who says this was an inauspicious beginning must be reminded that the checkoff was in effect hidden on a separate tax form was unseen by most taxpayers and that virtually no public education was undertaken to explain the new system and how it worked as a result of congressional pressure the irs remedied this major flaw last summer requiring that the checkoff be placed visibly on page one of the irs form ten forty for nineteen seventy three and thereafter in addition after a court challenge citizens who failed to use the checkoff in nineteen seventy two were given a second chance as a result a special makeup checkoff box was placed on the nineteen seventy three returns the response more than fifteen percent of the nineteen seventy three returns used the checkoff designating seventeen million five hundred and seventy five thousand fifty four dollars for the presidential fund this fifteen percent equals over one-quarter of those who actually voted in the 1972 presidential election. The current IRS projections indicate that there will ultimately be at least $29 million in the fund by the end of the year. And, if taxpayers continue to check off at a rate no higher than this year, it will mean at least $64 million in the fund in time for the 1976 presidential election. Moreover, Taxpayers are rapidly becoming aware that dollars checked off do not mean additional taxes. Instead, they represent an authorization for Congress to appropriate for the Presidential Election Campaign Fund the amount checked off. Given the degree of public cynicism about all politics this spring, a 15% checkoff rate may well represent the bottom rather than the top line of public support. If the number of those checking off increases, as we are convinced it will, with greater citizen education and understanding, so will the amount of money appropriated by the people to promote open, honest elections. The voluntary fund is clearly an excellent way to provide a broader system of public financing for qualified federal candidates. Tax incentives and, if necessary, general revenues are additional and legitimate sources for public campaign funding. We do not share the concern expressed by the majority of the committee over using Treasury funds for public elections. Tax credits and deductions are methods of public financing of campaigns that merely bypass tax collection. We are not adverse to continued or expanded use of tax incentives to aid in paying for national campaigns, and after further study the Congress may well wish to change the Internal Revenue Code to strengthen inducements for campaign contributions. We do believe that any candidate or party which receives public funds should be required to manifest significant public support. A system of matching private contributions with public money, such as provided in S-3044, meets this requirement. It also maintains the element of individual initiative that is so essential to the democratic process. We have only to look around us to see that public financing is a major new political issue, that it may become the most important new aspect of our continuing experiment in democracy. The current activity of many public officials and citizen organizations in debating methods and mechanism of public financing indicates a realization that not all, or even most, of the problems of our current election system can be solved by more criminal laws, more controls, and limits on political activity.
we are faced with the need to change not just the rules but the framework within which our elections and campaigns are conducted public financing is no panacea itself of course and its staunchest advocates are the first to note that it raises its own new and different questions what public financing can do however is move us one step closer toward that goal which we must always and continually pursue open fair honest elections in which the ideas of citizens and candidates compete regardless of the size of their pocketbooks with the energy and good faith this country brings to its biggest problems we can devise an equitable system of public financing that will help treat an illness evident in the watergate tragedy that goes to the heart of this democracy mr edward j gurney u s senator from the state of florida i am in basic agreement with the thrust of the report however i do point out that because the bulk of the report came in during the july fourth recess of the senate and the last portions within hours of the deadline time of submission of these views there has not been sufficient time to review the report thoroughly there are observations and judgments in the report with which i disagree and i feel sure that there would be other points of disagreement had there been time to go over this voluminous three thousand page report the investigation clearly reveals that there was a scheme and an organized effort participated in by persons in high official places in this administration to obtain political intelligence by breaking and entering into democratic national committee headquarters there is however a dispute in the evidence as to who was responsible for putting this plan into operation and who knew about the watergate break-in and when this is a matter that should be determined by the judicial branch of our government the testimony and documents presented to the committee also clearly shows that there was a conspiracy to cover up the watergate break-in and that certain persons at the white house were involved in that conspiracy the evidence is clear as to the part played by some characters in this tragedy and unclear as to what others may have done it was not the mission of the select committee pursuant to senate joint resolution sixty to place responsibility for individual criminal acts the committee had an important responsibility in its efforts to uncover the salient facts surrounding the watergate break-in and cover-up and other improper activities occurring in the nineteen seventy two election campaign by exposing these unethical improper and illegal political campaign practices to the american electorate we have provided the necessary groundwork to bring about a strong demand for needed political campaign reform as a consequence the senate has already enacted a far-reaching campaign reform bill which is now under consideration in the house despite reservations which many of us held at the outset and the possibilities of prejudicial effect upon subsequent criminal actions i believe that the televising of the hearings served a very useful purpose overnight the whole country became jurors as well as spectators in the unfolding drama the american people were permitted to observe everything which transpired the questions and answers the witnesses responses the actions and attitudes of the panel of senators and their staffs i think too that by televising our proceedings we counteracted prejudicial selectivity by the media of the material presented to the committee i do believe however that we spent too much time on the hearings especially on testimony from witnesses of minor importance to the investigation and on certain matters like the burglary of the office of ellsberg's psychiatrist which were not germane to our inquiry it is obvious that 
while it could not confine itself to strict evidentiary rules the committee did permit too much unsubstantiated evidence to enter the record because of the impact of the hearings upon millions of americans who watched their progress on television or read newspaper accounts of what was happening i believe we should have exercised greater discretion in handling hearsay testimony i was also troubled by the continual leaking of information from the committee it was not unusual to find that matters which transpired in executive session appeared in the headlines the next morning permitting highly prejudicial matters to be disclosed to the media reflected badly upon the matter in which the united states senate conducted this important and highly sensitive investigation i agree emphatically that political spying should be purged from the american political scene i consider that the committee's exposure of the machinations involved in the watergate affair will help to eliminate dirty tricks as an accepted political campaign practice it must be emphasized that from our own political experience and from the evidence we have received concerning this one notorious political affair we know that this administration or the republican party does not have a monopoly on dirty tricks or other illegal campaign activities it should be pointed out and it is clear from the evidence that the abuses of nineteen seventy two were committed by a few misguided individuals over-ambitious and over-zealous in their efforts on behalf of certain candidates and causes the wrongdoing was not the work of the republican party or its professional campaign staff the vast majority of people who worked in the nineteen seventy two presidential campaigns republican or democrat worked in honorable fashion for their candidates with no knowledge nor use of any watergate type activities i have strongly supported efforts to reform the campaign laws and the experience of the recent presidential campaign demonstrates the need to enforce these laws consistently and strenuously the most pervasive abuse of nineteen seventy two was the careless handling of cash contributions which should be barred from future elections this matter was common to both political parties but it was to a lesser extent a problem for the democrats since the republican party held the white house and was heavily favored to win re-election and so inevitably attracted more money i favor a simplified codification of federal and state election statutes to which the candidates and the public can readily refer we have enough laws on the books to deal with illegal campaign practices but we desperately need a handy guidebook for campaign staff members of candidates for public office i am totally opposed to the committee's recommendation for a public attorney with prosecutorial powers outside of the executive branch of the government the president of the united states must be held responsible for the business of the executive branch including prosecution of criminals it is his constitutional duty and his alone to faithfully execute the laws of the land i oppose the creation of a czar who could literally hound and intimidate governmental officials in the proper exercise of their responsibilities criticisms directed at certain officials for their handling of the watergate investigations reflect dissatisfaction with individuals rather than with institutions i do favor however the establishment of an office within the department of justice charged with investigating alleged campaign law violations and prosecuting wrongdoers see attachment a for legal argument finally i must add that i was utterly appalled by the revelations of watergate 
and i deplore the performance of individuals employed by or connected with the committee to re-elect the president which the committee's hearings have brought to light of course we cannot legislate goodness reform mankind or alter the ethical standards of individuals but i believe that the select committee's findings relative to the 1972 presidential campaign will profoundly affect the actions and attitudes of political partisans in future campaigns i hope that a genuine post-watergate morality will prevail in the political life of our country i hope too that the committee's investigations of the watergate break-in and cover-up and the prosecutions that have been generated by our inquiry will deter future administrations republican or democrat from indulging in illegal practices and improper conduct in their quest for victory and political power i wish to express my personal appreciation to my colleagues on the committee with whom i have been fortunate to labor in this important task and to whom i have been able to express freely my views over the past sixteen months attachment a legal argument against the establishment of an independent public attorney the recommendation for a public attorney with prosecutorial powers outside of the executive branch is unprecedented in our constitutional history its unprecedented nature is a forceful reminder of the constitutional problems inherent in such a blend of the traditional separate roles of the prosecutor and the judiciary it violates the principle of separation of powers it is at odds with the judicial function of the federal courts as provided in article three and it does not comport with due process the constitution provides in article two section three that the president is charged with the responsibility of ensuring that the laws of the united states are faithfully executed thus the function of conducting legal proceedings on behalf of the united states cannot be transferred to a prosecutor who is wholly independent of the executive branch professor saul bater of the harvard law school has written the constitution vests executive power in the president and commands him to take care that the laws be faithfully executed the enforcement of the federal criminal law is a central part of the function of executing the laws for the congress or anyone else to purport to create an agency wholly independent from the executive branch with power to enforce the criminal law would probably be unconstitutional new york times may fifth nineteen seventy three in ponzi v fessenden two fifty eight u s two fifty four two sixty two nineteen twenty two the supreme court rules that the prosecution of offenses against the united states is an executive function stemming from the power vested in the president by article two of the constitution the discharge of which is committed to the attorney general the attorney general is the head of the department of justice he is the hand of the president in taking care that the laws of the united states in protection of the interests of the united states in legal proceedings and in the prosecution of offenses be faithfully executed similarly in springer v philippine islands two seventy seven u s one eighty nine two o two nineteen twenty eight the supreme court declared that the authority to enforce laws or to appoint the agents charged with the duty of enforcing them are executive functions see also two opinion a g four eighty two four eighty seven to four ninety three eighteen thirty one in united states v cox three forty two federal second one sixty seven fifth circuit 
Shirshirari denied, 85 Supreme Court, 1767, 1965, the Court of Appeals held that a United States attorney could not be required by a court to sign an indictment initiating the prosecution of offenses against the United States. In addressing the constitutional authority of the executive branch in the enforcement of criminal laws, the court reiterated the principle of Ponzi, Supra, that the Attorney General is the hand of the President in taking care that the laws of the United States in legal proceedings and in the prosecution of offenses be faithfully executed. 342 Federal 2nd at 171. It then considered the role of the U.S. Attorney in discharging this executive power. The U.S. Attorney is an executive official of the government, and it is as an officer of the executive department that he exercises a discretion as to whether or not there shall be a prosecution in a particular case. It follows, as an incident of the constitutional separation of powers, that the courts are not to interfere with the free exercise of the discretionary powers of the attorneys of the United States in their control over criminal prosecutions. Thus, the court ruled that to transfer the power which is committed to the executive to determine whether to prosecute to another body, the grand jury, would be in derogation of Article Two, which grants to the President all executive power and vests in him the responsibility to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Similarly, in Newman v. United States, 382 Federal 2nd 479, D.C. Circuit, 1967, the court held that the lower court had no authority to review decisions of the prosecutor, and that it is not the function of the judiciary to review the exercise of executive discretion, 382 Federal 2nd at 487. Rejecting the suggestion in a concurring opinion that irrational decisions might be reviewable, the court said, The Constitution places on the executive the duty to see that the laws are faithfully executed, and the responsibility must reside with that power. Edem, number 9. The same principle applies with equal force to prohibit transfer of the power to prosecute offenses to an independent prosecutor or commission outside the executive branch. Finally, it should also be noted that the resolution authorizing the appointment of a special prosecutor during the Teapot Dome scandal provides no precedent for the appointment of public attorney. Prior to the introduction of the resolution in that instance, President Coolidge had suggested the appointment of special counsel, B. Nagel, Teapot Dome, page 92, and the language of the resolution itself recognized the authority of the President to make the appointment. Senate Joint Resolution 54, February 8, 1924. End of Section 30